No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Our recent show fell the day after the presidential election and was a very special evening of swap stories, welcome laughter, and free hugs. Kicking off the night, which featured a tri-flip of three true-life tales inspired by the theme, yep, you guessed it, elected, Nick Martarelli takes his role as snack food judge quite seriously in Mr. Adventure. Read for us here by Christopher Green. First question. First question. So again, uh, sometimes I go and I delve into the writers' lives and our relationship and write these really just, you know, great deep questions. And other times I pull shit off the internet. And tonight's a pull shit off the internet night. And I thought it would be fun, uh, just in the kind of awkward spirit of things, to pull pageant questions. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so these are odd questions that have been asked to beauty pageant contestants. Yours, Nick, is uh, describe a key and tell how you are like each ingredient. Oh, oh. man. So, so a pizza. <laughs> no, 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 wait. See, a pizza has a, it needs a nice firm crust. Mm-hmm. And that's the stable base that you set all of your life upon. But then there's the tomato sauce. And then I like my tomato sauce like I like all aspects of my life. A little spicy, not too sweet. And then you put the cheese inside, and it's got to be a mix of cheeses, like all of your different influences, but one of them can't stand out too much. Like, it's got to be that blend, but not too pepper jacky. Um, and then pepperoni, because everything's better with a little Italian. Hey, wow. Wow. Like Tinkerbell, clap your hands Can I just say, spoiler alert, very thematically consistent. (laughs) Mr. Adventure. The potato chip crackled as it disintegrated in my waiting mouth, bursting with salty, fried, sweet, milky goodness. Milky? Sweet? And hints of cinnamon, which, frankly, I was not expecting. I'm not sure what I had been expecting when I purchased the cappuccino-flavored potato chips. The last option in the Lay's do-us-a-flavor promotion. It was the only one I had not yet sampled, and I wanted to try all of them before casting my vote on which one should remain. Cheddar bacon mac and cheese had been the frontrunner all along, although the wasabi ginger kettle chips were a dark horse option, having good seasoning but lacking intensity. I had been hoping the mango salsa flavor would be the best, but the chips managed to disappoint on the taste of both mango and salsa. The cappuccino chips had proved impossible to find in New York, and I had thought myself out of luck until a stop for gas on a trip out of state provided me with the potato-based holy grail that I saw. (laughs) Later that week, logged into the Lay's website, I did them a flavor and did not vote for the cappuccino chip. My vote went for wasabi ginger. I prided myself on being an informed voter, thanks to that Pennsylvania gas station, but ultimately saw my candidate lose to the people's favorite. 
the way too safe and oh so predictable cheddar, bacon, mac and cheese. After all, everybody likes cheddar, bacon, mac and cheese. Why do I tell you the story about potato chip branding taken too far of my own poor judgment when it comes to putting chemicals into my mouth? <laughs> I tell you this because I am a sucker for marketing. Put new, improved, or new and improved onto a piece of packaging for a mass-marketed snack treat, and you guarantee yourself at least one sale. My fascination with corporate Frankensteining, run amuck, has led me to try such products as Cherry Chocolate Dr. Pepper, okay, <laughs> Butterfinger Cups, my new favorite, S'more-flavored candy corn, like eating a s'more-flavored Yankee candle. <laughs> Three Musketeers whipped with the delicious texture of astronaut ice cream. And the Burger King monstrosity Mac and Cheetos, which are exactly as terrifying as they sound. Warm Mac and Cheese stuffed into giant Cheeto puffs, somehow capturing the appeal of neither food and the existential horror of them both. If you were to look only at the decisions around these taste sensations, I might appear to be something of an adventurous type, looking to take risks, push boundaries, and see what is out there. This couldn't be further from the truth. Sure, I like experimenting outside of the day-to-day, -day, but normally only as far as trying a different deli for lunch. The snack decisions I make week to week are an aspect of my life where I'm willing to let myself go. But when it came to, when it came to larger life decisions, where to live, where to work, which vacation to take, I played to my base and tended to be more conservative than ambitious, more barbecue than Bombay spice. I need the occasional shove to go from Oreo to birthday cake Oreo. Such a shove came a few years ago. My girlfriend Sarah and I went away to her parents' house for a long weekend. They live in a Pennsylvania town that has both hot yoga and livestock. So Sarah and her older sister had grown up as outdoorsy kids, hiking in the woods, riding bikes, sailing on a nearby lake, and playing outside as much as possible. I had been a Boy Scout in my youth, earning rain gutter regatta trophies and merit badges in citizenship, <laughs> camping in cabins, and learning to tie knots. But my structured, marketed experiences paled in comparison to her spontaneous, continual ones. When planning for the weekend, Sarah mentioned that we'd all be heading to the lake on Saturday for both a picnic on the shore as well as some sailboat racing. Her parents are members of the local sail club and would be racing against other club members, after which we'd all enjoy hot dogs and macaroni salad while drinking domestic beers out of red solo cups. <laughs> the identities of the sailors themselves remained nonspecific, although Sarah said that I could probably sail if I wanted to. Since this was not a new flavor of Chips Ahoy cookie, I initially declined the offer, although I did say it sounded fun. <laughs> After all, I had seen the A&E miniseries about Horatio Hornblower, a series with a tagline inviting viewers to return to a time when courage was expected, but honor required. <laughs> Hornblower's sense of heroism and sense of fashion had captured my imagination. And although there are some differences between massive British frigates and three-man sailboats, the idea of me sailing was remote enough that I barely gave it another thought. Until the night before. Sarah had talked to her dad, and they had decided that when the sun rose tomorrow, I would be the third person on the sailboat for the races, joining her father and brother-in-law. 
I initially resisted. I don't know how. It's a race. Did I mention I don't know how? <laughs> but it rapidly became clear that she thought it was a good idea for me to spend the day with the boys. And if it wasn't going to be me, it was going to have to be her. And she didn't want to do it. So I was volunteered. I've dated women all my life, so I know when I'm beaten. And she let her dad know that I'd be his third crewman. Mate, sailor, hand, or whatever. And I went to sleep that night anticipating my horn-blowering life on the high seas. The next morning, after grabbing my sunglasses and my lucky I bought them because they looked cool boat shoes, I climbed into the truck with her dad Gary and brother-in-law Todd to make the hour-long drive to the lake. I had been expecting some sort of instruction, or at least something as cursory as port means left. <laughs> but the cab of the truck was filled with comments on scenery and weather. When it, was filled, when it was filled at all. Neither Gary nor Todd are particularly aggressive conversationalists, so no time was spent on explaining anything about the boat. The common refrain, we'll show you when we get there, offered no comfort and made me question my decision to sail with them. <laughs> the boat in question turned out to be of the thistle class. Thistles are about 17 feet long, crewed by three people, have a mainsail, the big triangle one that goes straight up, a jib, the littler triangle toward the front, and a spinnaker that looks like a hot air balloon. As a newbie, I would be in charge of trimming the jib sheet, adjusting the boom bank, and putting the twang on before setting the guy and flying the chute heading downwind. <laughs> if you didn't understand much of that, don't worry, neither do I. <laughs> luckily, Gary was a good captain, and even more luckily, all of the ropes on board were color-coded. So when he told me to trim the halyard and saw the confusion slash panic on my face, he'd say, pull the red one, <laughs> and my halyard trimming was done. I strived to follow in Horatio's footsteps and learn the strategy of handling the boat, watching the waves to see how the wind was blowing. But instead of posing for my own historical fiction paperback cover, I could barely learn the actual tasks involved. As soon as I thought I had the hang of trimming the jib, I was told to raise the spinnaker pole and was suddenly all thumbs. When it was time to take down the spinnaker, I was already on that jib again. <laughs> Being on the water doesn't allow for a lot of practice time either, so my training was always on the spot. I had just started to get a feel for the jib sail, trim to the wind, watch the stays, let them fly free, when we heard a horn that indicated the race was about to start. We jockeyed for position at the starting line. It never occurred to me that boats couldn't just line up. <laughs> and then we were off, heading across the lake for one of the buoy markers. Heading against the wind was pretty easy. The wind filled the mainsail, and we tack with the wind and zigzag across the lake. We rounded the buoy, passing within shouting distance of the other boats, and then turned to head with the wind. Raise the spinnaker! <laughs> the what? Oh, right. The hotter balloon one. Shit, this was the part I hated. Couldn't we just use the jib? I struggled to remember whether I had to release the green clamp and pull the blue rope, or if I just needed to pull the blue rope, or was it the red rope and the blue clamp, and where should the red rope be stowed when it wasn't in use, or was it in use? Shit. Splash. Shit! <laughs> Waves and wind threatening to capsize us if the timing was off as we switched sails. Pressure. Nothing like this in the movies. Pull it together. Pull it together. And raise that sail. Sail up! Relax. No, no. No time to relax. Trim, <laughs> trim, trim harder. 
<laughs> and now, spinnaker down. Tack and jib. Round the buoy to leeward. Spinnaker up. Round the buoy to windward. Spinnaker down. Tack and jib. Round the buoy to leeward. Spinnaker up. We went back and forth across the lake for what seemed like most of the morning. And while my sail changes were never pretty or fast, they eventually became competent, at least. A horn sounded, and Gary announced that we could take it easy for a minute and take a water break. Todd tossed me a bottle of water, and I looked back to Gary. Hornblower would be proud of me, huh? <laughs> oh? <laughs> Horatio Hornblower. He was a British sailor, and a horn interrupted me. <laughs> Different flags appeared where the old ones had been. Okay, Gary yelled. Let's get ready for the next one. The next one? <laughs> there were two more races that afternoon. In the second one, we fell so far behind on one of the legs that we barely finished. And the wind becalmed us so much in the third race that we often joked about needing to get out and push. We didn't. But when the races were over and we were guiding the boat back to the dock, my genuine smile belied my total exhaustion. Back on land, a promised lunch of hot dogs, mac and cheese, and boozy water ice awaited us. My girlfriend asked me how I did out on the boat, and I said I thought I did pretty well. I mean, I had survived and not capsized us. That's pretty well, right? But in terms of evaluating my actual performance, I suggested she should ask her father. We were stowing the sails and putting the life jackets away when Sarah asked her father how I had done. He paused, almost unnoticeably, and looked at me. Would he tell her, I wondered, about the near capsize, or the time I pulled the wrong rope and swung the boat in the wrong direction? Or would he mention that he had to instruct me anew every time I had to raise the spinnaker? <laughs> but no. He went back to the sail, saying that I did great for my first time, and it would be okay if I went out there again. <laughs> Did I want to get out there and do it again? She asked. <laughs> not really, I laughed. At least not today, or soon. But I suppose maybe next summer. I never thought I would have had the chance to follow in Horatio's footsteps. And when I did, I almost turned it down. But it turns out that I enjoyed it. And all I needed to do was to say yes. If everyone did that, just say yes. Then maybe the cappuccino chip would have caught on. <laughs> Switching it up, our next story travels back to a time when the Cubs winning the World Series was still a far-off fantasy. But at 4 a.m., the lines between imagination and reality blur. Nick Martarelli reads The Wizard, written by Susan Ferrara. The second story was written by Susan and so before Nick performs your story, my beauty passion question for you is how would you describe a rainbow to a blind man? <laughs> That's a terrible question. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Has the blind man already been had sight and lost it? Or? I think you can, since I gave you such a horrible question, you can no, decide no, for yourself. What do we think? Has the blind man already had sight and lost it? No, 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 no. Justin says no sight whatsoever. So. Unnecessarily cruel. Um, I would describe a rainbow as um, probably three or four different 
kinds of candy. Yes. From very lightly bitter to very sweet. <laughs> and if you put them all in your mouth at the same time and touch your tongue on each, going from bitter to sweet, that's the visual of the rainbow. How would you describe a double rainbow? <laughs> well, asterisk on this, my, my stepfather's actually blind, so I, I don't know, that kind of cheated. Uh, uh, but still, but he saw, I mean, he, he used to see. So. If I ever, I, like, I feel so bad in my planning right now that I don't have tiaras to give me <laughs> And like, sashes, like, these are beautiful answers to these questions. The Wizard. This is you remembering a night a hundred million years ago when you were just a kid in bed, barely ten years old, and had no idea how things worked, how the world worked, what people were like, what intention was, or motivation. Because you were just a kid, and intentions were promises, and motivation was cleaning your room fast enough to get a quarter from your grandpa. When your world was only as big as your kitchen, the living room, the bathroom, and that other room where your parents slept. Your block in the neighborhood. Your world was as big as the Cubs on Channel 9, WGN, and Wrigley didn't have lights yet. A hundred million years ago, when your world was small. A hundred million years ago, in your tiny bed, your eyes wide open, and the house was dark, and you heard a sound. Down the hallway and in the kitchen, you think. You think that's where it was, the sound. Your hands gripping the bedspread. You can't sleep, even though you're so tired. So you close your eyes and you count sheep. One, two, three, four. Are you awake? That's her voice from the other room. Your mom. Pretend you don't hear her. Pretend to be asleep. Fake it. Be a faker. She won't know. You can smell your dog, putting curled up at the foot of your footy pajamas. She's faking too. And you know it's early, or really, really late. It's 4 a.m. It's always 4 a.m. That's why she's shouting from the bedroom, asking you to do the thing, the thing you don't want to do. Because it's 4 a.m., and nothing good ever happens at 4 a.m. And the first question you ask yourself that night, that morning, your hands gripping the edge of the bedspread, hating this so, so much, is, why? Go see what it is. You're always asked to do the thing that no one else wants to do. You both heard the sound. You know you did. But she won't get out of bed. She'll elect you. She'll ask you. Which means that you're chosen. C-H-O-S-E-N. Which kind of sucks, because you're just a kid, and she's supposed to be the adult, and no one you know likes to be the person who gets picked out of bed in the middle of the night to go find out what was that, or what's that sound, unless you want to be the first person who dies in the movie where the monster, the guy who kills people, is downstairs in the basement. You're ten, but big for your age. Only ten, your mom says, even though you're much older than she is, even though she's only 30, or just over 30, because she had you when she was too young to know better, 
And she never really wanted kids. Which will kind of suck to remember later on when you're not 10, but more like 30, and you wonder why you really don't want to get married or have kids or even commit yourself to a dinner date. Are you listening to me? You can't sigh loud enough for her to hear you, so you get up, out of bed. The dog follows, and you hit the hallway, dragging your feet, because you don't really want to see what's there. Who would? Nobody's going to help you. Nobody's going to go with you. Not your mom. Not her. Nobody's going to protect you. You're all alone in this one. Who would want to walk down this cold, dark hallway towards the... 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 Whatever it is. And then you remember. Standing there in your footy pajamas. Frozen in the hallway. Picking at the skin around your thumb. The nervous tick you have when you're scared. You always waited for someone to tell you what to do. You always waited to be chosen. You don't even really know what that means. The waiting. The permission. The choosing. Because you're only ten. And intention and motivation are just words attached to candy or a quarter. Mm. A cub's win in a lightless stadium. <laughs> Why are you walking down this hallway? It's a good question. <laughs> right now, in this moment, you remember they were arguing. And your dad was crying. That's what you remember. They argued about time. They always argued about time. That's what you think. Time. And the clock. She asks all the questions, and he sits in the corner crying. My mom and dad. What time did you leave? What time did you come home? Did anyone see you there? Did anyone notice? It's time to stop this. Time to come home. Time to take care of things. Time to do right. You have a family now. What time is it? You start walking again, but her voice stops you just before you hit the light of the kitchen. The kitchen light is on. That's weird, don't you think? You think that's weird. And that's when you remind yourself that it's really, really, really early and really, really, really late at all at the same time. Like two worlds pressed together. And this time, this exact time, is the seam, the stitching. And the kitchen light is on, on the scene. And just before you turn the corner, step into the light, you hear it. The scratching, the noise that started it all. Stop! Don't move! It's the monster from under your bed, you think to yourself. That's the sound. Or the vampire in the basement. You can hear it. Come on, you know it is. You know they're there. They're always there, waiting for you. The monster told you about the tear, the 4 a.m. scene, and all the bad things that go scratch in the night and give you bad dreams and make you think you're wrong when you're right. Because he's a jerk, this guy. Both of them, jerks. Or maybe it's that weird guy with the name on his shirt who always pounds on the door when there's no one home. He wouldn't be here in the kitchen, would he? Now? This early? This late? 
Or maybe it's the woman from the church who leaves that giant block of plastic cheese on the porch. It's not plastic, your mom says, but she doesn't have to eat it, so she has no idea. (laughs) Or maybe it's the neighbor. Ralph's his name. Cut his thumb off with a hacksaw, which looked pretty cool, until you fainted and made a fool of yourself in front of the whole neighborhood. But it's too early for any of them. The monster, the vampire, the guy who pounds, Ralph and his thumb, the big block of plastic church cheese. It's 4 a.m., remember? So, do it. Open your eyes. Step in. Your feet slide on the wet paint. Wet paint? You ask yourself. And something changes. He hears you sees you. The room is moving. You make eye contact. This is your father. You look around. You take it all in. From your now wet feet to the floor to the ceiling. It's silver. He painted the entire kitchen silver. The whole kitchen. It blinds you with its light and movement, the shimmering silver paint that covers everything. Everything you see. The kitchen is alive. The dark green tile, the walls, the ceiling, the windows, the blue and green curtains, the cupboards. Silver. The glass-covered table, the chairs, the cabinets, the stove and the tea kettle, the paintings on the walls. Salt and pepper shakers, silver. The napkin holder and the spice rack. The telephone on the table. All the dirty dishes in the sink. The forks and spoons. The plates with the leftovers. Empty coffee cups. A pot. The faucet and scrub brush, oozing, dripping, and silver. The refrigerator is still wet and moving like it's covered in tinfoil, rolling in waves from the freezer to the floor. You can see someone's footprints. Silver footprints on silver tile. The dog dish and water bowl, painted. Leash and some treats. A crumpled bag of dog food. A stack of books from school. A flower pot. A now-dying plant. Wet, (laughs) silver, shiny. And the hand towels hanging from the cupboard door. More countertops. The toaster was already silver, but now it's shiny and moving and sparkly and great. The blender and cookie jars. Three different sizes. The last piece of pie from Aunt May from the bakery. The bakery she goes to every Sunday. Silver blueberries, wet and alive. And standing in the middle of it all. So clear and unpainted that you almost forgot he was even there. Your father, standing at the top of a three-step-step stool, standing at the very top with a paintbrush, a lit cigarette stuck to his bottom lip, dipping up and down as he delicately paints around the kitchen light bulb. And just as you're about to extend your finger, or to bring your hands together to clap, to celebrate, to tell your father how much you love all this, how much you love him and this magic, because that's what it is, Get down off of there! She is standing behind you. Your mom. She got out of bed. Wearing the nightdress she always wears. 
the face that never changes, a frown and a tick. Maybe her eyes full of tears? She's the grown-up in the room, and you? You're only ten. And your father, no matter what he says, he isn't much older than that. You are the same, the two of you, two magicians in the kitchen. She sees this. You see this. Even the kitchen sees this, reflects it in the glasses she put on before she ran down the hallway. And in that moment, in that very moment, your brain takes a picture. The paint, the man, the woman, the young girl, the dog, and the morning. So that when you grow up, when you're not ten, when you're much older, nearly thirty, like your mother in her nightdress with her glasses on, and you've listened to years and years and years of people telling you that all of this is wrong, that he was sick, he was different, unable to keep a job, keep a wife, love a woman, and after years and years and years, you'll remember the picture you took with your brain when you were ten, standing on the wet kitchen floor in your footy pajamas. And you'll remember that monsters are real, and so are vampires and sharks, and the guy who pounded on the door, the woman with her church cheese, Ralph and his thumb. They aren't bad or good or meant to be forgotten. They're beautiful and silver and full of light and part of your story. You'll stand in the here and now with all the noise, the nonsense, all the opinions of what is and what isn't right, about what you should or shouldn't do, what's possible, impossible, and you'll remember your father standing at the top of his three-step step stool painting the kitchen silver. You'll remember your mother crying behind you. You'll remember when they switched the lights on at Wrigley for another Cubs win. <laughs> and in the 4 a.m. half-light that does exist, you'll smile. Finally, closing out our tri-flip, Susan Ferrara reads Flex, written by Christopher Green, co-host of the Prose Bowl, about his days working in the cryogenically frozen world of a Kmart in Kentucky. Uh, we have one story left for you this evening, uh, and it was written by Mr. Christopher Green. Yay! Yay! Before I ask you your beauty pageant question, <laughs> I wanted to give you a moment to talk about the series that you run, since there's a, it's a, a room chock full of writers that might be interested in, uh, right. in learning more about it. And sure. I'll let you do your own. I've, I've spent so long on the No You Tell Elevator pitch, so I'll let you go ahead and introduce the Prose Bowl, Fair enough. Uh, which is Chris's series. Uh, yeah, so so John and I host a show called the Prose Bowl. Um, the next of which is very soon. It's Tuesday. Um, and uh, actually, Mike is going to be involved in that show as well. Are you going to be a judge again? Yeah, he's a returning yes. judge. Nice. Um, so so the, the elevator pitch for this show is... Uh, it's an open mic for fiction mixed with American Idol. Wow. So you, you come in and you read five minutes of fiction, um, which roughly translates to 900 words. Um, and then there's like a panel of three judges who uh, give you a combination of workshop-style feedback mixed with like maybe like some jokes, like, like American <laughs> Idol or, or, or shows of that you might do. Um, 
And then the judges pick two finalists, and two finalists have to get up and each read a story that is more or less the length of a tweet. It's our, it's our, wow. our lightning round. Um, during that round, the audience applause level picks the ultimate winner of the show. And then they get prizes of in, indeterminate practical value. I'll just say. So I don't want to let you totally off the hook with the beauty pageant question. Right. So really quick, if you were in a shipwreck and you could only save one member of the No You Tell It creative team. Oh, oh my god. Oh. Erica, Mr. Mike Dressel, or myself, Billie oh. Jean Fitzsimmons, who would it be? Yeah, I was thinking. Whatever question I get, it can't be as hard as how do you describe a rainbow to a blind person. I didn't know that you'd be giving me Buck and Sophie's choice. I got off pretty easy. Yeah. You did. You really did. You really did. Uh, I, I guess I'd have to save Mike because he's judging our show. Flex. At the age of 26, just out of a graduate program in literature, I spend four months selling washing machines at a Kmart in Erlinger, Kentucky. <laughs> and if this show were called No, You Bring Down the Room with Stale Tales of Recessionaire Woe, that would make a great story. <laughs> but as it is, I'm telling a slightly different one, one that happens right alongside it and which has a lot less to do with the fate of students and the humanities. Working retail in the suburbs is basically a more focused version of living in the suburbs. There's a lot of space, everything is very cheap, but nobody really wants to be there. And the music is always by people with names like Garrett Jackson and Trisha Cayley Jones. Also, Kmart continues to be trapped in a cryogenic state. It should have gone out of business years ago, and every time you walk in, it feels suspiciously like you're still in the late 90s. All of which means that, when you spend 35 hours of your week in this place, you slip into more or less a professional fugue state. Every person who does it has their own coping mechanism. Like me, I read all the books. I take them from the display shelves to read at my kiosk and squirrel them under the counter with the plastic bags and the pricing gun when I leave at the end of the night. But the other employees... Well, it's, it's important to first be aware that while I am in my mid-twenties, everyone else not wearing a manager's shirt ranges from 16 to 21. Girls with leather bracelets, still learning how much mascara is too much. Heavyset boys with perpetually untucked shirts, streaked with the grime of indeterminate origin. Everybody saying, fuck, all the time, like the word is going to spoil. I've just gotten done teaching kids this age, and now, by some cruel existential alchemy, I am something more akin to their peer. Except I'm not. I don't socialize. I don't inquire about their post-shift plans. I'm only a few years older, but that's just enough to create an impassable breach between us. And yet, I look like them. I listen to some of the same music. 
I suspect this is how I end up in the position I do. I work in appliances, which borders on the seasonal and automotive sections, because Kmart has apparently reasoned out how to operate while bankrupt. There aren't very many of us here, which means that the managers will often call on us to work flex. That is, migrate to neighboring sections and alternate two jobs for the same pay. One of the girls, Stacy, who works in women's clothing, flexes over to seasonal. And Petey, the boy who stocks toys and snack food, flexes into automotive. This means I often happen to work in between them. Perhaps you can already see where this is going. <laughs> it starts, of course, with Petey. He wends his way into automotive one day while I'm trying to stack, uh, straighten a stack of camo-patterned steering wheel covers. <laughs> Dude, what's up with Stacy girl? He demands. I've been on the shift for six and a half hours. My polo has pit stains. This is currently the fifth time the store radio has played If You're Gone by Matchbox 20. <laughs> what I want to say to Petey is, I'm not her dad, kid. What intel do you think I have on Stephanie or whatever you just said? <laughs> But I've learned to get through these exchanges using handfuls of carefully chosen single syllables. It's like... He goes on. She was all like super nice like two days ago and now she's being a total asshole. I grunt at him. Even if I weren't trying to keep all this short, that would probably still be my answer. At 21, he should be used to this sort of thing. Petey looks at the end cap display of motor oil next to him makes an ineffectual gesture towards tidying them. She an asshole to you? He asks. That depends, I tell him. Which one is she again? <laughs> It's clear that Petey, all five foot eight, 235 pounds of him, really likes this girl. But the girl is pretty like the kind of pretty that drives a man to learn how to play guitar. And while I would like to believe we live in a meritocratic dating utopia, as much as anyone, I suspect Petey's going to spend a lot of time offering Stacy the good half of his lunch to no avail. Now, Stacy, flaxen-haired baby Avril Lavigne Stacy. Who could, probably, who could probably wrap her name tag's lanyard around the circumference of her waistline. She's dating Mark. <laughs> And Mark, as far as I can tell, isn't dating anybody. The only time I think I've seen him happy is when he's throwing scraps of broken-down cardboard box at the other boys at the stockroom. Stacy stands with him in the home goods section sometimes, making plans for the weekend, and it's like she's trying to get a dog excited for a walk. You want to go, Mark? 
Wanna go? You wanna go? Let's go! And as I walk by, headed for the stock room, to get more air fresheners shaped like deer antlers, I see Petey two aisles down in toys. He listens with his head down, pricing gun in his hand, eyes on the plastic hot pink slinkies. In my memory, he has those wet eyes, that jutting lower lip, like cartoon animals just before they erupt into fountains of tears. All of this is mildly traumatizing to watch because, truthfully, I used to be Petey. I used to be that kid, watching the girl he wants throw herself at the feet of a boy who could not make her feel loved if he wanted to. And God knows, they never want to. I know the cyclical torment that he's putting himself through, trying to avoid thinking that if he were a little thinner, a little better looking, he could compete with Mark. But I also know that he's only half right. Looks are important, but Mark has mastered a different skill altogether. He doesn't want Stacy enough to think of competing for her. He just wants to smoke pot in his car on lunch breaks and talk about sons of anarchy with his friends. He wants to be a kid a little longer. And that makes him compelling in a way that neither of us, me or Petey, will ever be. But for all my sympathy, the last thing I want to do is get involved in this mess. <laughs> I was already a kid once. I'm not in a hurry to go back and do it again. It's not long before Stacy gets wind that I'm an effective brick wall to talk at, so <laughs> on days I'm not flexing to one side of this lunatic modern Shakespearean tragedy, I'm flexing to the other. Mark is so dumb, <laughs> Stacy informs me. I'm picking up all the Halloween costumes that the toddlers have like capricious imps torn from their hooks and littered across the floor. Stacy should be stocking fake light-up spiders and bats, but instead she's standing behind me, gnawing on her pinky nail, rocking back and forth on her Converse sneakers. Ten years ago, I probably would have had a thing for Stacy. But since I've aged out of the range where she feels like she can get away with being mean to me, I can see her for what she is, an anxious, lonely child. It's like, I mean, he's not doing anything else after work, so like, I don't know why he just go home. It's fucked up. Maybe he's tired. <laughs> I suggest. I know that's really disingenuous of me, but this girl doesn't want the truth any more than I want to be the one to offer it to her. Maybe he just wants to go to bed. I know I do. <laughs> this part is true. Fifteen minutes ago, a customer yelled at me because when I told him, we don't do blue light specials anymore, he accused me of hiding them from him. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now I'm hanging up witch hats that will be on the floor again in the time it takes me to walk back to my rightful department. All I want is sleep. Even if it's on a pallet in the back next to the swept-up pile of cockroach carcasses. Ten minutes later, back in automotive, Petey gives me his own appraisal of Mark's intellectual acumen. He's like a jock, except he doesn't do anything, he grumbles. And I think about reminding him that actually nobody gets delts like that without at least a little bit of doing. But that seems unhelpful. If if Petey and I have anything in common, and we do, then Petey already knows. There's probably very little about this that Petey doesn't know. I mean, he goes on, like, you've got a girlfriend, and you don't do anything either, but you're cool at least. I mean, you know, sort of. (laughs) So for the first time I can remember, I straighten and turn around to face him. For a second, I can't decide which question to ask first. Why do you think I have a girlfriend? Petey shrugs. You just, I thought you did. At 26, I am still about 40 pounds overweight. I have never published a single piece of writing. I've been single for two years. For Christ's sake, I work in Kmart. And this is when it kind of hits me all at once that Petey still lives in the world I left behind after college. The one where when you grow up, when other people grow up, it gets easier. Everyone stops caring about whether you're fat or shy or successful or whatever. They care only about your capacity to love them. A world where all your suffering will someday mean something, where you'll be forged into a person worthy of making someone else's life better. I'd like to tell you that I find the right thing to say to Petey here, because this is certainly the occasion to do it as we stand on either side of some kind of time-lapsed mirror. And God knows I think I could have a lot to tell him at the time. But as I write this, I'm now 32. That means the age difference between me as I am and that version of me working at Kmart, it's the same as it was between me and Petey. I look at this scene and I see that really we aren't that different. The truth is, although there is a lot about the world that Petey has not yet found the courage to face, I'm not much better off in that moment than he is. I don't know it yet, but in three months I will quit this job and I will take my life savings and move to another city to live with a woman I was in love with in college, a woman who, at the time, dated a man who didn't love her the way she needed. And after five weeks in that city, the woman will leave me for her ex-husband, and I will come home penniless, humiliated, certain that the only purpose of pain is to beget more pain. I won't think about this at the time. In fact, I won't think it until I sit down to tell this story. But all of us, the adults... We all struggle to stop being Petey, or Stacy, for that matter. 
We struggle to be desired, to be worthy of desire. And the lucky of us aren't the ones who win love from the loveless. They're the ones who accept it gratefully from the people most willing to give. Right now, though, standing there flanked by air fresheners and car batteries, I think I'm the wiser one, that I know something he doesn't. I lean back down to keep stalking. I tell him, you'll survive, man. You'll be all right. And I don't know if Petey believed me at the time, but I look back on us as I say that, and I believe me. I have to. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.